Well, Russell Silver Syndrome, RSS, is a uh, growth disorder occurring in uh, between 50 and 100,000, uh, one in 50 to 100,000 births in the United States today. It's one of 200 types of dwarfism. As I've mentioned before, my sister's, uh, my oldest sister's uh, daughter, Elizabeth, gave birth to a Russell Silver baby about two and a half years ago. And there are many symptoms and challenges for a baby that is born with Russell Silver. Uh, for instance, uh, they have uh, low birth weight uh, almost all the time across the board. They have low uh, blood sugar, hypoglycemia, which uh, brings a bunch of different symptoms like clumsiness, trouble talking, confusion, loss of consciousness sometimes, even seizures. Um, they have a, a grayness to their skin. Uh, ex they ex sweat ex uh, excessively as a baby. Uh, they have a triangular, for the most part, face shape with a kind of a, a, a small jaw and a, a pointed chin that uh, tends to lessen with age, but not always. And they have a mouth that, unfortunately, sometimes, a lot of times, is, is turned down. So it almost looks like it's like they're sad, you know, just, and that's just, that's just part of this disease. They have a blue tinge to the whiteness of their eyes, especially in younger children. Their head is, is uh, for the most part, a normal size, but their body is so small that it almost looks like their head is way too big. And I know with, with uh, Abigail, uh, my niece's little girl, uh, when she started to learn how to walk, because her body is so small and her head was so big that she would, she would fall over all the time. She couldn't, her neck couldn't really hold the weight of her head, so you see this little tiny thing, this little tiny thing walking around with a helmet. And she was good with it. She was cool with it. So, uh, you know, that was okay. But th that's part of it. Um, they, uh, for the most part, uh, have a body asymmetry. One side of the body grows more slowly than the other. Very low muscle, muscle tone. Uh, gastroesophageal reflux diseases. They have uh, almost a complete lack of subcutaneous fat. Fat just below the surface of the skin. They have no excess fat, really. Um, they have a late closing of the opening between the heart hemispheres. Uh, many times uh, they suffer, these little precious kids suffer from constipation. And most of all, most of all, they have feeding problems. You have this little child that is totally uninterested in, in feeding and will only take small little bites of whatever, whether it's, you know, it's drinking milk or when they get to age where they're taking solids, just little tiny, tiny bites. And, and, and that's, boy, I've seen that firsthand, that that was the case with, and is the case with Abigail. And I've seen, you know, my niece kind of just running around the house, just trying to get her to eat anything. Anything at all is great, you know, because they have such a small calorie intake that RRS um, children have to be carefully monitored. Every three hours, you have to try to feed them. And that's 20, every 24, every three hours, 24-7. And you, you have to chase them around. And if you put them to bed at 7 o'clock, you got to wake them up at 10 o'clock. Then you got to wake them up at 1 o'clock. Then you got to wake them up at 4 o'clock. And you got to try to feed them. Now, Imagine trying to feed, especially an infant or a little baby, who wants nothing to do with, with eating. Just that, it's, it's the last thing in their minds. How frustrating that is. They don't ever, ever want to eat. And if they don't eat, 
then something really serious begins to happen. The body begins to eat itself. It starts looking for any morsel of fat in the body to consume. So the, you know what the fattiest organ we have in our body? It's not your gut. The fattiest, you know what it is? It's your brain. 60% of your brain is fat. So you know, what, you know what happens with these little children is that if they're not eating, the body starts eating what? The brain. So that's the, that is the worst thing that could ever happen. So, as I said, they literally walk around the house trying to get Abigail to take small bites of this or morsels of that. And when on a rare occasion she would finish a bottle or she would eat something, it was like great rejoicing. You know, you would think, you know, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. When people see her, they say, you know, oh, she's so cute. But right away you know there's something wrong. You know, she's the same size as my granddaughter, who's, who's just one year old, same weight, same size. And you see this little thing walking around. And it's, it's, it's really, you know, they're good with it. I got to tell you, uh, Abigail was given to two fantastic parents, my niece Elizabeth and her husband Scott. But I got to tell you, they worry. They do worry. They wish that they could make her hungry for fruits and for vegetables. They would even take an appetite for pizza. Man, they would, you know, they'd buy a pizza every day for her, I think, if, if, she, if she decided she liked pizza. Anything at all. And it's really just so, for them, frustrating. There's something wrong. You can see it. But a lot of times, it doesn't seem like there's anything they could do. There was something wrong, really wrong, at the church at Corinth. They, they, they were not experiencing a normal growth pattern. Paul took one look at them, and, and he knew it. He could see it. He knew something was wrong. And in chapter 3, we see the writings of not some casual observer, but a parent, the man who founded this church the guy who was their spiritual mama and papa, and, 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 and you see his heart, and you could feel how alarmed he was at what he was seeing. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul identifies the problem as he saw it. Then he exposes the proof of it, and then he offers a simple prescription for correcting the problem. Paul knew one thing. If the problem wasn't corrected, that they, this church at Corinth, they as individual Christians might, with lots of care, lots of coaxing, survive, but they were never, ever, ever going to thrive. Never. Well, what was the problem there at the church of Corinth? Well, the main problem was an inadequate diet, as Paul outlines it. He says, brothers and sisters... I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. And yet Paul so desperately wanted them to feed on meat. If he could have, you know what he would have done, Paul? He would have followed them around the room. You know what? You know, metaphorically speaking, he would have followed them around the room, anything, just to get some real good food in their body, to get them some meat on their bones. I mean, he would have done that. It's something to, 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 to build spiritual bone and spiritual muscle and spiritual health into them. He would have gladly done that. 
But when he tried, you know what they did? They closed their mouths. They just wouldn't take it. Now, last week, we saw that they were too busy, for the most part, walking and following after people whose message was this. You guys are fine. You don't need what Paul wants to feed you. In fact, you may have too much already. You're, you're, you're absolutely fine. When I was a little boy, uh, I came to Christ. Uh, I, was, uh, I was five years old. And some people say, well, I, yeah, my yeah, yeah I, I know for a fact here, many years later, I was five years old, and I remember that night my mother reading a devotional from, yes, the Daily Bread to her children. And uh, I don't know, remember what exactly the story was in the Daily Bread that night, but I do remember that something happened inside. And when I went to bed, my mom was kind of tucking me into bed, uh, I started talking about what the story was, and I began to weep. Now, there are not many things I remember about when I was a little boy, but I remember that day, and I remember that night very, very clearly, even to this day. And I understood a few things that night, just a few. I understood that I was a sinner, even at my tender age. I knew what it meant to be disobedient. I knew what it was, you know, to uh, uh, be jealous. I fought lots with my older sisters. I, 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 I quarreled with them. I got it. I knew all about that. But that night, I understood for the first time that those things, those sins, separated me from God. And I knew something else, too. I knew that in spite of those things, that God loved me. Because if God sent his one and only son to die for me on a cross, well, you know, what in the world would somebody else have to What else would they have to do to really prove that they love you? I couldn't imagine of anything worse. There was no other reason why God would send his son than the fact that he loved me. See, I understood those things that night. So I slipped to the side of my bed, and the best way I knew how, on my knees, I asked God to forgive me. To, as we say, come into my heart, to fill me, to help me live a life that would be pleasing to him. I know that was the time when God changed my little heart, and it was a wonderful day. But just imagine, just imagine if that was as far as my understanding and knowledge of salvation ever got. Just think about that. Imagine if I, you know, as I got older, uh, I tried to think I could go it alone against the powers and principalities lined up against me and every other Christian without a knowledge of the power of the Word of God. What if I never learned uh, that, you know what? I need you. I need other Christians. And, and in fact, God uses other Christians in a major way to mature me. To make me better. What if I never experienced that? What, 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 what if I always thought I can go at, you know, I can go at myself and, you know, my thoughts and my experiences and my ways were the only ways? What if I interpreted God's love in a way that led me to conclude that God's main goal for me, Tim Chicola, was to be happy in life? Maybe even materially rich on this present earth. What, what, what if I misinterpreted the love of God and thought that? Or what if when trouble came, I thought that it was an indication of God walking away from me 
instead of using difficult times to grow me. See, what if I never got beyond that little boy's understanding kneeling at the side of his bed? I texted with a childhood friend uh, I recently connected with uh, yesterday, and uh, he asked us about, he asked me about my granddaughter, of course. Uh, I, you know, dug really hard into my phone and found one of the 2,000 photos that I have of her, and I sent one to him, and uh, I told uh, him what a blessing Jace has been to our family. I said, you know what? She's really kind of been what her name means, you know, a healing. She's been like that for us, uh, taking away some of the harshness of the grief that we had in losing our son. And he texted me back, and he said this. He said, by faith we know God is always good. Sometimes we're blessed to feel it. And I looked at that, and I said, yes. See, that resonated with me. I knew exactly what he meant. I immediately said, amen, amen to that. But I got to tell you something. If I still had a baby's faith, I would have looked at that and said, sometimes we're blessed to feel it. We better be feeling it all the time. I mean, you know, if, if, what, what, are you kidding? Good? Good? God, God does good all... I mean, even what would happen to you? Good? I would never have understood that. In short, what if I never grew? What if I always, spiritually speaking, stayed the same size my whole life? What if I never got beyond the understanding of that little boy kneeling at his bed? I might say that that would be sad, but you know, that would be a wrong characterization. It wouldn't be sad. You know what it would be? It'd be tragic. Really tragic. The Apostle Paul, hearing what was going on in that church that he had founded, though he was thankful, we talked about a few weeks ago, very, very thankful that the Spirit of God had come to reside in, in the hearts of those in that church. He was concerned and he was alarmed over the things, many of the things that he saw that were happening in the church. They had not grown as he had hoped they would. They were still, in many ways, at the beginning stages of their faith. But you know, stunted growth because of a poor diet has always seemed to challenge the church. <laughs> if you look in the New Testament, in fact, if you look at what the, the writer of Hebrews wrote to the churches that he was writing to, look what he said. He said, in fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taking forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. There it is. Why are so many content with milk and never moving to meat? The writer of Hebrews wrote it. Because they're not willing to forsake their sin and be obedient to God's commands as he has clearly outlined it to them. They even understand it. How many times do I hear, you know, believers saying, how many times have I said in my life, yeah, I know what God's word says, but you know what? I'm doing this. I mean, I'm just, I'm just doing it, you know? And, 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 and the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what? That's why you're stuck with the elementary teachings. That's why God has to keep circling around. 
That's why you never move forward in your faith and receive the blessings and the deepness and the bone strength and the muscle strength that God wants to bring into your life. He was saying to them, you know what? You should have been teachers by now, but they couldn't move forward. What's the difference between a teacher and a student when you think about it? Well, teachers have gone through the disciplines required to master their lessons. They've made the decisions to move ahead, which may mean, you know what? Not going out on a Friday night when you got midterms on Monday. They go through the arduous task of lesson plans, memorization, writing papers, and, 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 and they were told, you know, this is what was going to be required if you want to become a teacher, and they did it, and they set their sights on it. Always moving beyond this, you know, from semester to semester, beyond 101 training until they've mastered it. Students, they're just starting to get into it. They're just starting to learn. They're just sticking their toes in. But what if entering their teacher's college, just imagine, instead of mastering the education courses, uh, they became adept at partying. They really mastered at partying 101. And then they mastered to 102. And they kept getting, you know, they, they would kind of, you know, a lot of college students have, you know, advanced with that degree. Uh, they, you know, they, they, there was never a party that they weren't at. Never a video gamers tournament that they weren't a participant in. Never a sporting event that they weren't there cheering the team on. You know what would happen eventually? You know what happened? They fail. Uh, they may try again, take some coursework over, but you know, pretty soon, the college isn't going to take you seriously anymore. And pretty soon, their own dream begins to die. They were still living on the elementary truths. See, they, like the church at Corinth, existed on the milk that they had become accustomed to at the very, very beginning of their faith walk. And you know what Paul says? Paul says, I can't even address you as spiritual men and women. I can't address you as, as, as men and women who live by this incredible person, the Holy Spirit of God that resides in you. I can't address you with words of great wisdom and life that would be seconded by the Spirit who lives inside of you. Why? Verse 3 says it. Because you're still what? Worldly. You're still worldly. You're still operating by the principles of the old world order. I can tell this by your understanding or, or lack of understanding about marriage. We're going to be talking about that. By, by your lack of caring for weaker brothers. By bringing lawsuits against each other. By, by your use or misuse of your gifts that God gave you. And most of all, by the way you view your earthly leaders. You're following the, the world's way of thinking when it comes to almost everything in your life. You think like the world thinks. You're still following after their leaders and their thinkers and their wisdom for living. You are following and listening to people, as we looked at last week, who are coming to nothing. They're coming to nothing. And right now, Paul says, my suspicion is that if I were to give you the deeper things of God, you wouldn't even understand what I was saying. In fact, you would probably gag on them like an infant gags on a hamburger. You have he who searches and understands the recesses of the mind of Almighty God in you, but you cannot even hear his instructions because you are so worldly-minded. Here was the problem that Paul identified. The problem was they had an inadequate diet. And it didn't look like it was going to change anytime soon. 
And to kind of back up that assertion, he gives some proofs. The proof majorly that Paul said is the reason why, you know what, they weren't able to take this this meat into their life was because uh, they had given ultimate worth to lesser things. Um, For since there is jealousy, it says, and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? And you can almost hear it. You know, I'm reading that this week, and I'm going, are you not acting like mere humans? And if I'm sitting there, and I'm a little cynical, and I'm like, you know, kind of a little back on my heels at this point, you know, Paul's kind of like chastising me a little bit. You know, I'm probably going to say something like, wait a minute, Paul. (laughs) Okay, just time out. Master Paul, could you come down from your ivory tower? You know, the fact of the matter is, in case you don't know this, we are mere humans. Okay, we are humans. And Paul had been trying to tell them, no, you're not. You're not mere humans. You're not like everybody else. The minute God's Holy Spirit came to live in you, you became something else. You no longer look at life the way everybody else looks at life. Listen, for the average man or woman holding down a job, getting enough money to put down at a down payment on a house, getting your kids through college, making it through to retirement so you can play golf or do yoga or visit the grandkids in Peoria and go on frequent vacations, it is more than enough for most people, but not for you. You were made for bigger things. You were made to be agents of change, to be vessels that God would use to heal sick relationships, to raise your children and other children in a perverse and putrefying culture, to be wise and to recognize wisdom when they hear it and to recognize the world's so-called wisdom when they hear it too, to reject it, to live quiet, godly lives. You most certainly, Paul says, you most certainly are not mere humans. Your perspective of life now stretches way, way, way past this life into a non-ending future existence with God in conscious joy. God has placed eternity in your hearts so that you have a long view of the present and a longer view of the future. You are not merely human You possess the Spirit of God within you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And when it comes time to give a testimony in a life group as to what God has done in your life or somewhere else, and you find yourself grasping, folks, he's saying, you find yourself grasping for a story from eight years ago where you brought somebody to a church service and they got saved, and that's the, that's the closest, nearest thing you could talk about, that's maybe an indicator that, you know what? The Holy Spirit of God has been muffled in your life. He's not operating the way he wants to because when the Holy Spirit is operating in a mature believer, he will constantly be reaching and changing and challenging and saving and healing through you and in you. That's what Paul was saying. But that wasn't happening in Corinth. It wasn't. Instead, they were fighting and they were quarreling. What were they quarreling about? Well, verse 4 says this. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? That was their biggest concern. Uh, You know, that's what took up all their time. Uh-uh, and everyone following their guy. You know, they followed their guy, and they tried to get everybody else to follow their guy. That's how the world operates. 
They build their lives on a cause, even if it's a good one, even if it's a, a, a noteworthy cause, on a particular teacher, on a leader in their industry, on a rising political uh, star. Paul didn't say it explicitly, but he spelled out their problem. You know what it was? They were idolaters. The church at Corinth was filled with idolaters. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God were ultimately wrecked by their idolatrous practices. Remember Moses when he, he's sending them off into the promised land? He mentions it 50,000 million billion times. He mentioned it once. Don't fall into idol worship. Don't worship idols. Don't worship things of wood you know, and, 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 uh, and gold. Don't do it. If you do it, this is going to happen. You'll be destroyed. And when it came up against the other people groups, instead of influencing them, that's exactly what happened. The people groups got them to worship images of birds and animals. Now, there's nothing wrong with birds or animals. Guess who created birds and animals? God. He thought them up. He populated the earth with them. They are good things. But here's what happened. They became guilty of taking a good thing and turning it into a God thing. Taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. And, folks, that is the essence of idolatry. Now, look, you look at our culture, you know, the U.S., 2017. Uh, there's not a lot of people bowing down to stone idols. Or we, we don't have, that's not our problem by and large. Our problem is not hardcore idolatry. Our problem is softcore idolatry. We struggle with things that God has created and given to us that are good, but after a time we take them and we substitute them for God. Things like food and sports and sex and family and careers and stocks and entertainment and comfort and retirement. And it becomes a primary focus in our lives. And the good things become ultimate things. Things we, 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 we got to have. Things that are going to save us. Things that will give us security. Things that will give us self-esteem that we're looking for. We make idols out of good things. And good things become ultimate things. An idol is anything that we take and turn into an ultimate thing above God himself. That's, that's, that's the baseline definition. And in our day, I believe that flesh and blood people have often replaced our idols of wood and stone. See, I think that's true. How do you know if you're making an idol out of something or someone, you know? Uh, I, I know it's true because, you know what, if you look at the magazine, on the magazine rack at CVS, you know, you got people, and you got us, and you got, it's all about, you know, the gossip pages and the newspaper stuff like that. You know, and you say, well, I just like reading it, but there's some, maybe there's one or two, or you particularly follow, or there's somebody at work, or there's something like that. How do you know if, if this has happened? If you have replaced the spirit of the living God in your life with a flesh and blood individual and become an idolater? Well, I got to tell you something. Uh, I think uh, anger is a good giveaway. How would I mean by that? When something uh, happens uh, to your idol, um, I, I think, you know, what is your emotional reaction? If you lose a good thing, uh, anybody, natural reaction is to be sad, is to be disappointed, is to be discouraged maybe. But if you lose an ultimate thing, you will freak out. And when we freak out, when I freak out, uh, I, get, I get angry. I get angry freak out. I think most people get angry freak out. Amen. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, not amen, but just you agree. 
Um, and the reason you freak out and the reason you get so angry is because that's what you're all about. That's what you live for. That is what your identity or who your identity is wrapped up in. And you take this away and the world is over. A lot of times, extreme emotions, especially anger, are a clear indicator. You know, it's a litmus test of whether we have crossed that line into idolatry. You know? Um, is something become too important to you? You're probably going to get angry if someone who you kind of have set up as a mini idol in your life, they don't, they don't say what they're supposed to say. They don't react the way they're supposed to react. Folks, I tell you something, there are a lot of times in marriages where I think one or the other enters into marriage, and there's a little bit of kind of an idolatry thing going on there. And folks, I got to tell you, if you think, if you enter into marriage, we'll talk about this later, and you in any way think that this person is going to give you the self-esteem and everything that you've been looking for, you have doomed yourself. Because that person will never be able to deliver on your expectations. Never. It'll never happen. These people in this church had so tightly wrapped their identity around their particular teachers that they, uh, you know, these teachers who were provided by God to teach them, provided by God to encourage and to disciple the young believers at at Corinth, they had become, for many of them, idols. And so when someone from Paul's camp said, Apollos, yeah, he's all right, but he's so intellectual, Apollos, you know? I, I, he loses me, you know? I'd rather, Paul, you know, is meat and potato guy. You know, I get, I get into that. I can, I can understand that. And, and, and when the people from Apollos' camp heard that, they freaked out. It infuriated them. When Apollos' camp listened to Paul and said, you know, his teaching style is embarrassing. I brought my neighbor, you know, last week. He was checking his, his sundial watch, whatever they, they had on, the, on the, whatever they had, you know, about five times the time he was speaking. It was terrible. Listen, sometimes a good indicator of whether or not a good thing has become an ultimate thing is how emotionally invested we have become in it. A lot of times extreme emotions are a clear indicator. Anger is a good giveaway. But there's another, I think. I think fear. Look at your fears. Look at your worries. Why am I so fearful of losing this one or that person? Uh, why am I so badly worried? You know, when, when this person or somebody, you know, is threatened or somebody criticizes them, you know, and I'm off to the side and I just want to take them and just, you know, bam, bam, bam. Why am I like that? Folks, bottom line on this, we are really good at making idols. It's the one thing we do great. I mean, you know. Nobody does better than than human beings. We make idols. We manufacture them in our heart all the time. How many of us take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing? You know what John Calvin wrote? John Calvin said, The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. Yeah, he's right. We are all guilty of manufacturing idols. All of us do it. How did Paul know that they hadn't, you know, matured all that much? Well, they had given ultimate worth to lesser things. But there was a prescription. It seemed pretty simple, but Paul gave it. They needed to see everything in life as all about God. It's all about him. Verse 7 said, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. When we make an idol, we forget who 
is our God. Idols have a way of distorting our thinking, I tell you. According to uh, a new nationally representative survey by the Innovative Center for U.S. Dairy Products, uh, they, serve, they surveyed 1,000 people, all 50 states, about their use of knowledge of dairy products. 7%, you ready? 7% of all Americans, roughly 16.4 million people, do not know that chocolate milk is made of milk, cocoa, and sugar. Do you know where 16.4 million Americans believe chocolate milk comes from? Brown cows. 16 point, I checked this out in a couple of different places. Six, and they said, and in the article that I was reading from the Washington Post, they think they're underreporting. They, they've gotten it wrong, and, and they're, they, it's, it's much greater. <laughs> relax now. Relax, everybody, okay? The percentage of misinformed adults about chocolate milk seems high, as I said. <laughs> But writing this article in the Washington Post, Kathleen Dewey notes in, in that article, I think it was in June, uh, that she really does believe it's higher. She said, many Americans are essentially agriculturally illiterate, especially if they do not grow up in agricultural communities. They might not understand how food is grown and what it takes to get it to the grocery store. In the article, she quoted a woman, Cecily Upton, who's the co-founder of a nonprofit called Food Corps, which brings agricultural and nutritional education uh, to elementary schools. And she said this, Cecily, uh, uh, Cecily Upton said this. She said, at the end of the day, it's an exposure issue. Right now, we're conditioned to think that if you need food, you go to the store. Nothing in our educational framework teaches kids where food comes from before that point. The way most agricultural products today are marketed to shoppers really doesn't help. In the supermarket, meat, produce, and dairy products are often packaged in plastic wrap, cartons, and boxes. They don't look much like the original plant or animal. And folks, unless consumers Google the information or learn it in the classroom, it can be easy to disassociate between milk in their glasses and the cows that produced it. Now listen, if you can't even work your way back to the cows that produced the milk, how in the world will, will you ever find your way back to the God who made the cows? How are you going to do that? Are we educating our children to know that it is God who provides our daily bread for us? Do you know... You know why we bow our heads before a meal? Because I always wanted, Marion and I always wanted our kids to know, you know what? This wasn't from the grocery store ultimately. We wanted to go back to the very beginning. We wanted them to know that you know where it came from? It came ultimately from God. It's by God's hand that this food is provided by you. It's by God's hand that we have this house. It's by God's hand that it's warm on a cold November morning. See, everything, all good things, ultimately get back to, you know who? It ultimately gets back to God because he is the giver of all good things. See, we wanted our children to know that. We didn't want them to be among the people who said, well, yeah, milk comes from a container. We wanted them to know that it came from God. I think it may be missing more and more in our culture. Apollos wasn't the one who produced the milk. He was the container. 
Verse 5 says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord is assigned to each his task. Yeah, they're doing good work, but that's what they're supposed to do. They're doing what God has told them to do. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Here it is. But only God who makes things grow. You could be a crackerjack farmer. You know, the seasons, you got all the right equipment, you know, John Deere, you know, stuff or whatever, you know, they got. And, you know, you, you plow at the right time. You put the, seed, the super seed. You didn't get the cheap seed. You got the good seed. And you planted it in, you know, little holes that you made. And then you covered it up. Unless the rain comes, guess what? You have a total crop failure. And you'll never make a dime. And you'll go hungry. See, ultimately, even that comes down to the hand of Almighty God. Paul was saying, in effect, unless and until you're ready to follow hard after Jesus Christ and make him the center. Recognize him as giving us everything and giving him alone the glory. We will forever be in danger of raising up mere vessels to a status reserved only for God himself. And when we don't recognize him as the giver of all good things, it shows that we are still clinging to elementary truths Stunted in our growth and unable to begin consuming the meat that we so desperately need to make us strong. And it all comes down to this. As we progress to solid spiritual food, we will become strong and we will be able to face all of life's challenges. There's nothing shameful there's nothing unusual for infants to desire milk. But if they are forever in that stage of life, not progressing in their obedience, as, you know, as, as God tries to introduce to us true wisdom, each one of us in our, in our Christian life, as disclosed by Christ, as dis disclosed in his word, then there is something wrong. Paul looked at this church that he loved. Paul looked at this church that he sacrificed for, and he looked at them, and he said, they're still on the bottle, the milk bottle, you know? They're still drinking the milk. They've never progressed. They're not progressing. They're not listening. They're not obedient. It's not normal. And then you know what starts to happen? What happened in the church of Corinth? The church starts eating itself, and there were fights and there were battles. It's all about God. As we recognize that it shows that, if we recognize that, it shows that we're progressing. It shows that God is doing something in our lives. It, it, it shows that the Holy Spirit is being listened to in the life of an individual and in the life cycle of a church. Because as we progress to solid spiritual food, we will become strong. We will be able to meet all of life's challenges. That's what Paul was telling this church that he loved so deeply. It's what he's telling us today. <laughs>